once again, show your appreciation to your worship leaders right now, would you? Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you why that's so special today. We don't, if you're visiting today, we don't usually do things like that. But, you know, more so than Christmas Eve, more so than Easter, uh, this weekend, I'm telling you, our worship team, our tech team, our volunteers, obviously went above and beyond. They are just coming off uh, 10 Winter Wonder performances, and then they lead all of you in amazing worship on, on a day like today. And so, yep. <clears throat> and so it really is amazing, and, and they are tired. And so if you see them behind the scenes, or if you know some of them, just thank them uh, for what they did and, and tell them to get some rest. And uh, we got about two weeks running up now to Christmas, and it's okay. We're going to kind of slow things down a little bit. We're going to ease into Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and I think all of you are going to be very pleased. So uh, while what I'm doing this month, as you know, is I'm preaching out of the Christmas stories that all of you are familiar familiar with as we do a run-up to Christmas Day. And we're trying to get a fresh look at these Christmas stories. Part of the problem of Christmas is that we've heard these stories like a thousand times. We tell them in Sunday school and all that, and they can tend to get stale. They can tend to get mundane. We can just tend to say, oh, I know them already. But we're trying to blow through that this Christmas season and tap into the power of Christmas that God has designed for us. Now, I know that you've been standing for a half an hour while we sing, but I'm gonna ask you to stand one more time for the gospel reading, so do that right now. Cactus Northridge Chapel, please stand. Even if you're at home, please stand, because it's respectful to stand as we read the gospel, and then you're gonna get to sit down for a long time. So follow along as I, I read this for you. Luke 1, verses 26 to 35, it says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. An angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and <clears throat> you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated, and as you are, let's bow together and pray. Father, I have one simple prayer this morning, and that's that for all of us here and at Cactus Northridge Chapel Online, that we would find freshness in your word, that you might surprise us with joy Show us, Lord, something that maybe we haven't seen before in this amazing story. And more than anything, God, show us how it affects us even today, because it does. And I pray this in Christ's name. And we say together, amen. 
Well, I think one of the things that amazes all of us in this world that we live in is when we witness what we might call someone who goes way beyond the norm. It happens quite often, especially with our, our mass communication day. We hear and read so many stories about people, and it always amazes us when we see a fellow human being of this world go way above the norm like when Yo-Yo Ma touches a cello, or for you longtime rockers, when Eric Clapton touches an electric guitar, or how about when Tom Brady, for you football fans, gets a hold of a football, it's really a masterful thing, or how about when Rembrandt touched a brush to canvas, or when Hemingway touched a pen to paper, or when Michelangelo touched a chisel to marble. The list goes on and on. Uh, Tiger Woods when he picks up a golf club, Steve Jobs when he would touch technology, Martin Luther King when he would open his mouth and start to be in order, when Lance Armstrong would get on a bike. Here's the deal. We all marvel at those among us who excel to such a level, now don't miss this, that goes way beyond the norm. Malcolm Gladwell calls these guys outliers and we're in awe of what our fellow human beings do that seems to go way beyond what most of us can do. And so with this in mind, let me ask you, this is really important, what if on a spiritual level, in our very walks with God, that God was to tell you that as you and I each journey with him, that the way beyond the norm in his economy actually becomes the norm. Think about that. But what if God said that when it comes to his followers, the outliers actually become part of the bell curve? That Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me and the works that I do will do greater works than I do because I'm going to the Father. What if God were to reveal to you and I that the normal Christian life is a heightened life above the norm of constant revelation and power to such a degree that the kingdom can and should be filled with tons of spiritual warriors, you, that have constant and regular victory? Because here's what we're gonna learn today, folks, and that is that this particularly simple Christian story, or Christmas story that we read earlier teaches us that God is in the business of taking everyday normal people in everyday normal settings and doing something profound and life-changing by the power of his Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. That's what this Christmas story teaches us as Jesus comes into this world. Let me show you what I mean. I want you to look again at the opening verses of our story, and I want you to notice initially here how the opening setting, and I think this is intentional by Luke, describes very ordinary people in a very ordinary setting. Look what I mean. He opens up the story by saying, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God, here it is, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, here's what I need you to do to try to latch on to this opening part of this story here. I want you to forget for a moment everything that you know about the Christmas story 
and just pretend that you're living in the first century in Palestine and you're hearing this story or reading it for the very first time. So forget about the manger and the shepherds and the wise men and all the things that you know about Christmas and just pretend that you're reading this or hearing this for the very, very first time because I can promise you, based on these opening lines, here's what you would be thinking. You'd be thinking Nazareth. Well, that's a city north of Jerusalem, about 3,000 people, kind of middle to upper middle class. They got really nice camels. Uh, Nazareth overlooks the mountains of Lebanon. I've been there, I've vacationed there. It's a nice city. You'd think of Fountain Hills here today. You know, you take a day trip over to Fountain Hills and see the fountain and go up and down the hills. That would be akin to Nazareth back then. And then as you read on, you'd say, well, a virgin betrothed to a man. Well, that's a common scene in my day, because it was. Back then, they had engagements like we have today. Joseph and Mary were engaged. The only difference is, and I don't mean to step on some toes here, they didn't sleep together before marriage. Ouch. Why? Because they read the Bible, and they believed the Bible. When it says, don't have sex before marriage, and so they didn't. So again, this would not be an unusual scene to have a virgin betrothed to, uh, to uh, somebody to be married. And again, they have normal names. Their names are Mary and Joseph, kind of like Paul and Susie today. We know they were probably young uh, back then. It was a brutal culture, a really different culture than today. So women had to get married very young in order to be protected in that crazy uh, culture. And so most scholars suggest that Mary was probably 15 or 16 years old and that Joseph was maybe a year or two older. So again, what you'd be thinking is you'd be thinking these two kids from this great home, the house of David, they're getting married. Isn't that just wonderful? So add it all up. We're gonna put this together in a minute here. You got a totally normal everyday scene being painted here in the first two verses. In ordinary town, everyday people, a typical situation, two kids getting married and doing so in as pure a fashion as they know how. And then as you read on, though the spiritual sparks begin to fly a little bit, it's still pretty ordinary. Look at the next verse, verse 28. The angel speaks to Mary and says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And some of you are going, well, that's got to be unusual, right? Actually, not really. I mean, the angel's presence is unusual, and that freaks Mary out. But what he says to her, though it bothers her because she's a 15 or 16-year-old being told you've been favored by God, what you need to see is that that's not out of the ordinary in the Bible, That word favored that's repeated twice here is the Greek word charis, which is the Greek word for grace. The angel is simply saying, hey, Mary, you've been graced by God. He's got his eye on you. You've been favored by him. And some of you are going, well, isn't that special? Well, in one sense it is, but when you read the Bible and you understand that word charis, you understand that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were graced by God. Moses was graced by God. Aaron was graced by God. Miriam was graced by God. David, Solomon, all the prophets. And then you get to the New Testament, you find all the 12 disciples were graced by God. And then Paul would use the same word grace, charis, to talk about how thousands of believers that he wrote to have been graced by God. So you kind of get the message here. It's it's a word used often to talk about the favor of God on anybody his eye is upon. It's a relatively familiar concept in the Bible. 
So again, if you're reading this for the first time through first century lens, you'd not find anything out of the ordinary that a humble, righteous person has found favor with God. Please see, folks, we're gonna put this all together in just a minute here. These are rather normal, everyday people in a rather normal, everyday setting. And even though there's an angel, and that's probably the most unusual thing, and that's freaking Mary out, the things the angel says are not out of the ordinary. And again, I know how some of you think right now. You're thinking, but Jamie, this is Mary. Everybody and their brother knows that Mary was anything but ordinary. Two answers to that. And I don't mean to step on any toes based on the tradition you might have come out of. But first, notice that I think Luke is making the opposite point. That initially, Mary and Joseph were very ordinary, everyday people. And that's the point, as we'll see in a minute. And secondly, if Mary does take on any status, and she does, both in Catholic circles and to a degree in Protestant circles, now don't miss this, it's because of the grace of God and the favor of God and the Holy Spirit that has come upon her. Amen. It's not because of anything Mary did. She'll admit that. She'll even say, my gosh, how wonderful it is that God has graced me this way and blessed me among all women. It's God who did that. And Mary herself knows that and admits that. So, so again, it's a rather ordinary setting. Now, it's at precisely this point as we read on, which we're gonna do right now, that things begin to heat up and spiritual sparks begin to fly. Things begin to change right now. Look at what the angel says in verses 31 and 33. He says, and behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and you're gonna bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high, not son of Joseph, son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. So obviously now, gang, the turning point in our story is here. This ordinary gal named Mary is gonna become pregnant and we know it's not through her future husband, Joseph, Joseph, but through divine intervention by God himself. And it's because of this that the baby will be called son of the most high because God is conceiving this baby in Mary's womb. And so they're to name him Jesus, which again, back then they would have known that Jesus in its Hebrews form is Yeshua, which means God saves and what does that mean? Well, so that there's no misunderstanding, the angel tells Mary that this guy's gonna be given the throne of David, he'll reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there'll be no end. And now they get it. Again, if you were in the first century hearing this for the first time, you'd, saying, you'd be saying, the Messiah is coming through Mary. The long-awaited deliverer for Israel is here. Throne of David, house of Jacob, kingdom being brought back, and yet Jesus will grow up as he becomes a man to say, yes, I am the Messiah, I am the deliverer, but many of the Jews got wrong what that meant. He is of the house of David, he is of uh, 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 the throne of David, he is of the house of Jacob, he is here to bring the kingdom, but it's a spiritual kingdom. They will bring forgiveness, offer forgiveness to everybody as we've sinned against God and bring them into the fold. That's what Jesus came to do. 
and it's prophesied here right at his birth that now everyone has a chance to connect with God through Jesus in full forgiveness and this full grace. And so don't gloss over right now. This is important for where we're gonna go in a second, that spiritual sparks are flying at this point. You got a miraculous virgin birth, son of God most high, given the name Jesus, God saves, a never-ending spiritual kingdom committed to bringing anybody and everybody that'll follow Jesus into the fold. It's God's amazing plan that's being unfolded here. Come to us in Jesus. And again, I'm gonna bring you back to this. The vehicles that God is using to bring about his plan are regular, everyday people, two kids really, with names like Joseph and Mary. And just so we get it, one last time, let's look at this ping pong between the ordinary and what God is gonna do through these ordinary people. Look at verses 34 and 35. Mary says to the angel, well, how will this be? I mean, I'm a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called holy, the Son of God. Again, you gotta see this, folks. Verse 34 is so different than verse 35, it's, it's comical. Because if you didn't have verse 35, verse 34 would be about as human as it gets, right? As ordinary as it gets. You got a confused 15-year-old girl. You got one of those in your house? You got a confused 15-year-old girl who's saying, Mom, how can this be? I don't get it. And so it's a very ordinary, everyday question that a teenager would ask at this point about the scenario being painted. But then the extraordinary is brought in in verse 35. Because the angel says, the Holy Spirit's gonna invade your life. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and there will be a palpable power, Mary, brought with the Holy Spirit. There will be palpable power brought by the Spirit. Shoot me here. That, uh, <laughs> all right. Bad timing, there it is, bad timing on this one. And we're at the pinnacle of the story right now. That, that's what you don't wanna miss that Luke has designed all of this in telling the story to say the Spirit is the center of it all. The Spirit is what will overshadow Mary. The Spirit is what will bring the power. The Spirit brings it all to fruition. And so really the pattern and form of this Christmas story, now don't miss this, is God using an everyday scene complete with normal people. We've established that to accomplish his salvific and extraordinary purposes on earth. That's the flow and heart of this very commonly known Christmas story. And folks, if you haven't guessed it yet, I would submit to you that, that this truth has profound and life-changing implications for you and me today. And not just in the guts of the story, the fact that Jesus came for us, we established that last week, but don't miss the pattern being established here because I think there's something in that for you and me as well. That God uses, chooses to use ordinary people just like you to accomplish his redemptive purposes on planet Earth, but it's through a vehicle that many of us are, quite frankly, confused about, and that's the Holy Spirit. 
who lives within us and empowers us. Normal, everyday you. What you don't wanna miss in the story, as I started out a few minutes ago by telling you, the outliers become the norm. What you think of as spiritual giants around you, God says, Jeff, that's to be you. Ed, that's to be you. Diane, that's to be you. Tracy, that's to be you. Fill your name in. Bill, that's to be you. That we're not to look at people around us like maybe Pastor Jamie and say, well, I guess he's kind of like that because he's a pastor, you know, and he reads the Bible a lot, da, 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 da. No, the normal everyday Christian life is to be a spirit-filled life like Mary's was where the Holy Spirit comes into your life and changes everything and puts you now as an outlier, but actually part of the bell curve. And some of you, again, are resisting this. You're going, but Jamie, this is Mary. I I mean, yeah, the Holy Spirit filled her. (laughs) Guess what? The Bible makes it really clear. About three years after uh, Jesus' public ministry started, as Jesus said, died and was resurrected and ascended into heaven, the Bible makes it clear that the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And as you'll see in a minute, the moment that you received Jesus, the Holy Spirit was deposited in your life. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Mary and that overshadowed Mary now is in you and wanting to do very similar things He wants to take you from the ordinary to the extraordinary each and every day. You're saying, like, how does that work? I know I've thrown a lot of Bible at you today, but as I say quite often, this is Scottsdale Bible Church, for crying out loud. So let's look at a few more passages, because I think this is really relevant stuff, okay? So I want to show you just four passages, and my only goal is to wet your whistle, to kind of get you salivating after what the Spirit wants to do in your life. The same Holy Spirit that if you're breathing and have believed in Jesus lives in you, each and every one of you, no matter how fallen you might be, no matter how struggling you might be right now, the Spirit has been deposited in your life. We'll see that in a minute, and he inhabits you. And what does the Spirit want to do? Look at this first verse, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Paul says, now we have received not the Spirit, small s, of the world, but the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Whoa, what does that mean? The things freely given to us by God are his word, the 66 books of the Bible that he has given to us to reveal to us who he is, what this crazy world is about, what your messed up soul is about, and how you can bring it all together to find redemption and sanctification in Jesus. And what Paul is revealing here is that the role of the Holy Spirit, now watch this, is to help you understand rightly these things of God. Theologians would go on to call this the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I like that word because illumination, you guys do it every day when you flip a switch, is a light bulb going on in your house, right? And so as soon as you flip that switch, a light goes on and the room is illumined. That's what's to happen every day in your head as you think about God, as you read his word, as you hear sermons, as you interact with each other and talk about God. The light is to go on because the Holy Spirit is illuminating your heart and mind as to who God is. That's pretty cool. But that's just the start. 
But look at a second verse here. This one's found in Acts verse 1, verse 8. Jesus is just about ready to ascend into heaven. These are his very last words. The Spirit's going to be given just a few years later in a powerful way. And Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And again, the Holy Spirit did come upon them on the day of Pentecost and now comes upon every believer at the moment of salvation. You'll see that in a minute here. And you're saying, well, power to do what? <laughs> again, it's for a whole other series. Maybe I should do a series on this, but it, let me list you some of the things that the, Holy, the Bible says the Holy Spirit does as he gives us power. He gives you power to resist sin, meaning you don't have to cave in. He gives us power to persevere when things get rough. In other words, you can tie a knot and hang on for dear life, and he's going to give you power to do that. He gives you power to love the seemingly unlovable. And some of you are going, I don't know if I want to. Well, he gives you power to. He gives you power to love those in your life that you say, I don't know if I want to love them or I can love them. God says, yes, you can. No victims here. He gives you power to connect with him on a moment-by-moment -moment relationship. He gives you power to share others with him. In other words, see it this way. Figuratively speaking, you got power coursing through your spiritual veins because someone, the Holy Spirit, lives in you and is coursing through you. And again, some of you are saying, but I don't know how that works. Well, I'm gonna help you with that in a minute. But first, look at this passage, because we're not even done yet. You got illumination, you got power. Look at Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14. This is amazing. In him, meaning Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus, here it is, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, meaning heaven, to the praise of his glory. Whoa. Again, I, entire series of messages on this one, these two verses. Theologians would go on to talk about the twin pillars being described here as assurance and security. Simply put, that if you're a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit was deposited in you, now watch this, to assure you each moment of each day that you're his. That no matter how much sin or junk or pain enters into your life, and some of you have come in here today with a lot of that, I get it, that God still says to you, you're mine, and I'm not letting go. Jesus says that those who are mine, no one can snatch out of my hand. You know what's amazing about that saying of Jesus is? That means even you can't snatch you out of his hand. <laughs> you can't walk away even if you wanted to. Why? Because he's gonna chase you like the hound of heaven. It's the assurance that you're his. And then security is similar to assurance. Security says that he's got a grip on you and he's never letting you go. You are eternally secure that no matter how screwed up, forgive me for saying that word, your life is, no matter how messed up it is, he's got you and he's not letting go. And you're secure all the way to heaven. Why? Because you believe in Jesus and you're his and the Holy Spirit inhabits you. And the Spirit seals us this way. I didn't look up this word seal in the Greek, so I don't think I need to. I just think of saran wrap when I think of this. I just think of it like you seal your food in saran wrap or whatever it is. He has got a saran wrap around your life because you believe in Jesus 
And the Spirit works that way in you. So again, let's review. You got illumination. You got power. We're just scratching the surface, by the way. You got this security and assurance. And then, and then look at a fourth verse. And, and that, with this, we'll move on. Romans 15, 13, it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in your faith and believing so that by the, say this word with me, power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. There's so much going on here, my head is dizzy. Uh, the normal Christian life is to be one filled by the power of the Spirit so that you're overflowing with joy, you got peace in all circumstances, your faith is unwavering, and you got hope no matter what comes your way. I just got one question for you. Who in the world wouldn't want that? Please see, folks, this, you can clap at that, I guess. <laughs> Here's the only thing I want you to see today. And, and again, we've duped ourselves as Christians into thinking and settling for less. This is the normal Christian life. It's a heightened life, spirit-filled, the power of the spirit, and it's communicated right during the birth of Jesus. It's the power of Christmas, complete with revelation, personal power, assurance and security, and a life of joy, peace, faith, and hope for everyone who believes. There are no outliers here. There are no spiritual giants. Though some might be more mature and further down the road as you are, now don't miss this, God says you can and hopefully will become that someday. You see, we see a, a Tiger Woods with a golf club, and let's be realistic, we're never gonna golf like him. I see Yo-Yo Ma play a cello and go, I'm never gonna play a cello like him. Eric Clapton, I'm never gonna play a guitar like him. Uh, Steve Jobs, who, who's now gone, I'm never gonna invent an iPhone. Uh, the reality is, is that our world tells us these guys are outliers, they're super gifted, they're above the norm, and you will never be like them. So just be the best you can. Here's the problem, we have dragged that mentality into the church, amen? We have, and we've made heroes out of these pastors and TV preachers and what have you, and that's fine. I mean, some of them are more mature and they're great to inspire us and in all this, but the danger in that is that we think we're never gonna become that mature spiritually or that inhabited by the Holy Spirit spiritually, and God says, hogwash. He says, I designed the Christian life for all of you to experience my power, my illumination, my security, my assurance, my hope, joy, peace, faith, hope, all of that by the power of my spirit who indwells you. I love how Ephesians 1 verse 3 would summarize it. It says, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Gosh, I looked at that word every in the Greek, and you know what it literally means? Say it with me. Every, every spiritual blessing has been given to us. As I'll say elsewhere in the New Testament, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. My question is, do you believe that? And some of you believe it, but then you say, but Jamie, okay, you're telling me the Spirit lives in me. I don't feel it. I, 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 I guess I believe it, but how do I tap into this life that you're describing? And I'm gonna share one last verse with you and then give you a list of things that I've seen the Spirit do that might encourage you. And the verse, actually it's two verses, are out of the, probably the most powerful chapter in Scripture on the Holy Spirit. It's found in Galatians chapter five, where Paul the Apostle is a, 
is talking about the fleshly life and the spiritual life and what the two look like. And he talks about those nasty sins of the flesh and then the fruit of the spirit. And in the midst of that, he actually makes a distinction that has confused some, but I don't think it needs to. But this is the key. This is what some of you are missing. When he says, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Very simple imagery, but very profound, and it's the secret to why some of us live such placid, mundane, everyday lives. He says, walk by the Spirit. He says, we do live by the Spirit. If you believe in Jesus, you live by the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit lives in you. But he's saying it's possible to live by the Spirit and to live a very fleshly life, to have the Holy Spirit be the deepest part of you, but you've covered it up. You've covered the spirit up with your own flesh, your own strength, your, your own attitudes. And you just go, through, you go to church and hear a good sermon and sing some good songs and then you just forget about it for the rest of the week and you might read daily bread in the morning but, it, but it's beyond you by about nine o'clock and, and you're just doing your thing. And, and, and he's saying you're living by the spirit in a sense because the Holy Spirit lives in you but what are you not doing? You're not walking in the spirit. You're not keeping in step with the spirit. Now, what's that about? It's a very simple illustration. It basically assumes that the, the Holy Spirit, who in John 16 is called the paraclete, somebody who walks with us and encourages us, that, that the Holy Spirit wants you to keep in step with him each moment of each day. Simple imagery. Walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. But watch this. It assumes that it's possible for you to be out of step with the Spirit to not be walking in the power of the Spirit and to have the Spirit kind of be distant from you, even though he lives in you, but you're doing your own thing. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Keep in step each moment of the day in the Holy Spirit. Don't miss this. It's a cooperative effort that's being described here. Some of you are waiting for it to happen to you. Grow up. The reality is, is that the Holy Spirit has happened to you if you believe in Jesus. He lives in you. Now it's your job to slow down, to stop being so busy, to stop making you the center of the universe, to stop watching so much TV to stop focusing so much on your 401k, to stop playing so much golf, to stop being obsessed with your work, to stop doting on your grandkids, though grandkids are nice, but to stop doing all of that stuff and allowing it all to consume all of your energy and then at the end of the night saying, thank you God for a blessed life and hope you get a good night's sleep. See, that's the life that most Christians live today. And again, I love how Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? Doesn't work very well. Why? Because again, it's all about you. It's all about what you want to do. You're saying, well, how else could I live? You can live each moment of each day as you're doing all those other things, by the way. All the things that I mentioned are not bad, but you can do all of those things by staying focused on the Holy Spirit through faith, pausing at numerous times throughout the day and saying, am I hearing him? Am I feeling his nudges? Am I hearing his whispers? Am I being sensitive to what this Holy Spirit, who does live in me, is trying to say to me? And am I open 
each moment of each day to slowing down enough to getting in touch with what the Spirit might be doing. Because again, the only other option you got, folks, is to assume that the Spirit-filled life is more for the spiritual giants who, quote, know how to do this. But I'll give you a clue. Many of them are faking it, so doesn't that kind of pop your bubble? Is there really a Spirit-filled life that I can tap into in which he speaks to me each moment of each day in a way that I feel him and listen to him? And I believe the answer is yes. But you have to be open. You have to believe that. And it does take faith. And it takes each moment of each day saying, here I am, Lord. I'm open to you until you start to get it. I have a list here in my notes of uh, just some of the amazing things that I've seen the Spirit do by people who were open to him or at least reached out to him. Our pastor, Rustin, who many of you like, he's a special guy. Uh, some of you don't know this. Some of you think Rustin just got sober 12 years ago, but he didn't. But Rustin went up to Tacoma, Washington, where a group of Christians, I mean, in a very mystical way, prayed over Rustin in a profound way that God would break the strongholds of his addiction. And uh, there was a breakthrough there by the power of the Holy Spirit in, in which the Holy Spirit invaded Rustin's life. But Rustin was open to that. People were praying for him. And even though Rustin works the program and does things to maintain his sobriety, he would be the first to tell you the Holy Spirit was central in his recovery. Phil and Tina are a couple here in our church who we've done a My Story on years ago. Uh, Phil and Tina are my heroes because years ago they got divorced and then they each came separately to Jesus and then the Holy Spirit invaded their life and even though there wasn't a lot of lost love on, a, on them, they decided out of obedience to get remarried to each other because the Holy Spirit said, I can save this marriage. And they did. And now they're living probably very happy today. I might say at best day semi-happy, but they're living very happily today in obedience to Jesus and in love with each other, all because of the Holy Spirit. I've seen the Holy Spirit reverse patterns of sin in people's life, break pornography addiction, uh, break anger cycles. I've seen the Holy Spirit heal emotions. I've seen the Holy Spirit help people get control financially. I've seen the Holy Spirit take people from intense doubt to intense faith. And again, some of you are tempted to think, well, Jamie, I've heard those stories too, but, but that seems like the outliers. I get it. We don't hear them often enough, amen? We don't hear often enough about what the Holy Spirit does. And, and part of that, again, what did Jesus say to the apostles? Oh, you of little faith. I think part of it is because we just don't believe. We're so mired in our technical, internet-driven, comfort-laden, Western society that, that, that we don't really believe there is room for the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit could do in my life. This ought to move you. We actually hear stories out of China and India and Africa from our missionaries about the ecstatic movement of the Holy Spirit in ways that we go, why isn't that happening here? And the answer is simple, because they believe, and some of us have been lulled to sleep in our churches, during our quiet times, listening to Christian radio, as we're spending more time looking at our investments than we are really focusing on God. Larry Crabb, who was my wonderful mentor who died recently, 
I was on a crisis point years ago. I was in Maine on a study break. My parents had a cabin there. And I had a fitful night's sleep in which God gave me some dreams, not too different than the Joseph Mary stuff that was just so real where he was speaking to me. But I was still in pain and agony. And I was talking to Larry the next morning. And I, I said to him at one point, I just said, I know God's chipping away at my character. I know he's trying to say something to me. I, I said, but I want more of him. I want more. And I said, well, what does God want from me? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Jamie, the definition of sanctification is a God-obsessed life that learns to fight the battle well. I hung up on right there. I didn't need any more from him. That's what I needed. A God-obsessed life that learns to fight the battle well. See, I think that's what's missing in America today. <laughs> I don't think we have a God-obsessed life. I think we fit God into our life, amen? We fit him in in the morning. We fit him in in the evening. We fit him in maybe through a prayer at midday. We don't want to have a God-obsessed life. And again, it's the old adage, what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. You're not getting much out of it because you're not putting much in. I, I lead a God-obsessed life. I, I don't know why. It doesn't make me more spiritual than you. I'm almost haunted by him. I can't stop thinking about him. Every moment of every day, I think about God. Probably what makes me a pretty good pastor. But I also believe that's the Holy Spirit living in me wooing me to him each moment of each day. And I long for that for you because every day is filled with these little rainbow moments where the Holy Spirit does speak to me. The illumination happens, the power happens. I'm not perfect, but I know what the everyday Christian life is to look like. And I long for that for you. If anything today, just leave here like this. Cactus, Northridge Chapel, leave here like this. Be open to what he wants to do in your life. Tell him you want more of him starting now and that you're willing to carve out that space and time. Tell somebody else you want more of him. Rustin reached out years ago and said, I'm in pain, I'm addicted, I need help. And some Christians came around him and prayed the spirit to be vivified in him and it was a game changer. Maybe that's your journey, I don't know. All I know is he's got more for you. It's the power of Christmas. It's the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this simple, simple Christmas story that we've all heard a thousand times. We tell our children this story in Sunday school. But sometimes, Lord, we have yet to really park in front of it <laughs> and see the pattern that is right there of a normal everyday scene with normal everyday people that were sabotaged by the Holy Spirit <laughs> and their lives have changed forever. And God, here's what we know. You're still doing that today. That for any of us who believe in Jesus and come to him, your spirit is deposit, deposited, guaranteeing our inheritance, sealing us for the day of redemption. And that, Lord, now you want to empower us, illumine us, give us joy, peace, hope, faith, all the things that we need to follow you. So, Lord, for some of us, we're salivating after that right now. We want more. And so, Lord, would you do that in us? As we open up, as we slow down, as we become more God-obsessed in our mentality and in our heart, God, may your spirit be vivified within us, rise up within us, and surprise us with joy. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.